Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Now, Jason, before you say anything, I need I need to I need to know something from you. Do you feel as hungover as I feel right now? <laughs> I do not. No. Huh. No. Okay. I feel I feel pretty good. What were you up to last night that's got you a little hungover this morning? So, a, a bit of a spoiler alert here. I've got in town with me. I've got David Cover of Pendaren. Mm-hmm. In uh, town being. Uh, so we're in New York. I'm in New York now. I'm in a New York hotel room. And um, he is, well, we're about to start our day. That'll be in a little bit. But I have him in town. And our first night, first day slash night was, was yesterday. And we ended our evening at a place called The Liberty. Uh, where we were with our distributors and their entire spirits team. And there wow. was a lot of eating and drinking. And I, I think what I would say here is never underestimate the power of a lot of 43% alcohol whiskey. Oh, that's an interesting takeaway. Yeah, right? so our old joke that that's 57% water, Yeah, it's still 43% alcohol, is it, that the takeaway? It, it's still 43% alcohol. <laughs> and and so we're drinking, of course, you know, the Liberty, I think, is loosely a Welsh bar. And so we were there because Pandaren is a, is a Welsh whiskey, so we wanted to have a, a Welshness in the atmosphere. And so we're drinking... You know, we're getting this Pandaren and that Pandaren, and then we're doing Pandaren highballs, and and oh, diluting it further. Yeah, diluting it further. Yeah, by the end of the night, uh, I took a very crisscross walk back. Are you trying to say it's a zigzag path? Oh, is that it? Yeah. No, it was so bad it was crisscross. <laughs> were all your clothes on backwards, and you were trying to jump, jump, crisscross to make you jump, jump. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine you in downtown New York City with your polo shirt and your baggy jeans, your dad jeans on backwards, hop hopping all the way home. What's What's great is, uh, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. This is a story that I'm not going to say <laughs> on tape. Interesting. No one got hurt. <laughs> Everybody's fine. Uh, let's okay. just let's just say. Something what? got. Let's just say something got damaged, uh, but we can buy a new one. That's all. We, as in our company, or no, we it's, as it's, in somebody else's <laughs> company, as as in as in our company. It's it's just it's a sixty dollars thing. Joshua, what did you do? I didn't do anything. Joshua, it's someone else did it. Someone else okay. did it, and I don't want to say. I don't want to. I want to be respectful of that person. Okay, not, so and, I, I don't need names. So if you're saying $60, is it a spirit bag? It's a spirit bag. <laughs> okay, do you still have the spirit bag? I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
this is tortured. Okay, you still do. Was there anything in the spirit bag? Because that would make it more than $60. So everything in the spirits bag is (laughs) completely fine. Let's just say uh, the handle doesn't really work anymore. Those handles are such shit. They, They are shit. Um, and, and then one of the, it has two wheels in the back. Uh, one of the legs in the front is just gone. Uh-huh. It's just dead. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And, and the person who, the person who had this bag does not recall that happening. Awesome. Oh, I tell you this, this is all good. This is all to the good. Yeah. When you're drunk and it's just money mistakes, totally fine and acceptable. Uh So I'm guessing that you're drunk, there's a spirits bag being damaged, someone was clearly drunk enough they don't remember it. Did it get hit by a vehicle? You would think it did, given the look of it. (laughs) Okay. Did Did it hit a sidewalk? Because I know that as you're pulling it by the handle and you try to carefully go up onto a sidewalk, the wheels can get hit. Those little front stands can get hit. So the handle can get twisted. They're they're mostly garbage bags, considering what we put in them. I I think that that's what happened. Uh, The person in question doesn't remember it happening. But they were in. They were solely in charge of the spirits bag. You were not observing. I was not observing. <laughs> Imagine just waking up in your hotel in the morning, looking to the corner where you put the spirits bag yeah. the night before yeah. and looking at something that looks like it was run over by a yellow yeah. taxi yeah. cab in New yes. York City. Yes. yes. <laughs> but right. So, so, like, what did I do? Mark Watts fear kicks in, right? This is, this is exactly what Mark Watt talks about when he talks about waking up with the fear. Like, what happened? What did I do? And but, then you yeah. then you think, oh, that was a good night. Good, Yeah, you'd wake up, no fear, everything's great. You look in the corner, you see a damaged bag, and you go, oh, no. <laughs> you look at oh, the corner, no. there's a dead body. What oh, happened? No. <laughs> <laughs> Your morning can change real fast. It can change really fast. When but, you see evidence of the night before. So the moral of the story is, I mean, you know, you, 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 well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you know me, I, I typically don't get drunk. I don't like being in that space, but it just goes to show like you seriously do not underestimate 43% alcohol. I mean, it just, I didn't know I was getting drunk until I was there. Yes. Right. And so, yes. so disclaimer. I know what you're saying. Right. Yeah. So, disclaimer always pay attention to what's happening. Please be safe. <laughs> and Listen don't. the please drink responsibly <laughs> message. And don't damage whiskey bags like, like mine got damaged. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the listener, if anybody is not entirely familiar, the spirit bag that we're just throwing around that language, it's a little 12 bottle max soft container walls in every single one of your bottles so glass is never touching glass uh however that's about the extent of their safety and i I even just told somebody this the other week when i was in california um you had been walking around stone cold sober in new york city 
mm-hmm. went to mount the sidewalk with your spirits bag and a bottle got broken. Not just any bottle. That was oh. a bottle of 17-year-old Springbank from, from the Cadenhead's cage, 17 years in Marsala. That was oh. the one bottle. I remember smashing, I remember hitting it and oh. smelling whiskey and thinking to myself, please don't let that be the Springbank Marsala cask. And wouldn't you know, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. My, I wasn't with my spirits bag when uh, a bottle broke, but I'd been flying into SeaTac. I mm. had put my um, spirits bag into a larger bag, yeah. padded it, protected it. Yeah, yeah. And when the carousel came around, the nice wet bag was mine. The nice wet suitcase belonged to this guy. And I, mm. <laughs> there's only one type of liquid in my bag when I travel. So I knew exactly what it was. Oh, the, you travel with jars of, of urine, right? You're one of those guys that, <laughs> that can't f- put it down a toilet. You've got to. Actually, I only return home with jars of urine. <laughs> I don't leave with jars of urine. I leave with empty jars. No, none of this is true. <laughs> it's true. All of it. It's all true. And so I walked out with my wet suitcase, got on the the bus to the car rental place. Yeah. And uh, and the little girl who turned to her mom and said, "Mom." What's that smell? And the whole place, it just smelled, oh gosh. Of it, urine? It smelled of very strong whiskey. Because you had asparagus the <laughs> night before. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, yeah, the, the real tough part is because it was the beginning of a trip, all my uh, socks and clean underwear were in my spirits bag. Oh. They don't go home in my spirits bag. They go to a separate compartment. I travel enough. I know what I'm doing. Trust me on this one. <laughs> and um, and so all my underwear for the trip had uh, shards of broken glass in it. Oh, God. It must have hurt so bad putting <laughs> those back on. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> At first you think, am I upset because they're wet? And then you get past that, and then you get upset because, yeah, there's shards of glass rubbing against your nethers. <laughs> your down there's. <laughs> your down there's. <laughs> Ooh, that's a blast from the past. Do you remember what episode we talked about? Oh, it was, it was with... Um, yeah, Lee Atwood. Lee man. Atwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You suggested he lives down there. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> uh. Uh, Do you know what? Just you talk about blasts from the past. You know, I've now got people pointing out the hand crotch to me. They're like, hand crotch. Never called it that. Never thought of that. Now I can't unsee it. Brilliant. Hand crotch. Boom. Yep. So anyway, enough enough nonsense, enough hungover frivolity. (laughs) Oh, we've got... Wait, no. No, No, don't back it up. I'm not backing it up. I led with, spoiler alert, I'm with David Cover. Well, the the place that I wanted to get to was that I'm going to be interviewing David Cover for a future episode. Sweet. Because his knowledge... So we interviewed John and and Rob from Pandera, mm-hmm. and I think that was yep. last September, something like that. And and they were they were very good. Rob is the sales guy. Um John is 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 more the marketing guy. And while David Cover is the global brand ambassador, 
he's worked in the distillery before he took on that job. So he's got a very intimate knowledge of their Faraday still. And he was going on about it yesterday. I thought that it was simply just a combination of a pot still and a column still. And it is so much more than that. The way that they handle their, their heads, their hearts, and their tails is unlike anything I've ever heard of, period. And so awesome. that, that's going to be a really, really fun interview. So the spoiler alert is I'm interviewing David Cover for a future episode. Sweet. That'll be fantastic. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. That's interesting that by the time this episode drops, it'll almost be a year since you last interviewed those those boys john and john and ron john and rob john rob. and ram yeah ranny ronnie rob. Rob. rob rob first time <laughs> so okay so you visited well, let me pause, yeah, let me yeah, pause yeah, you go for ahead. a second yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. so obviously i've been in california since mm-hmm. since we've been recording all right and i'm back i had the pleasure of spending time with Young uh, Elijah Amamon. Oh, Elijah Amamon. Yep. He's a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. And while I was in California, his wife delivered their first child. Are you kidding me? It was fantastic. Uh, it was magnificent. I, I worked with him on the Tuesday when she was heavily, 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 heavily pregnant. He texted me in the morning and said, yep, woke up this morning. My wife tells me she's still pregnant. I will see you at our first meeting. Holy <laughs> moly. Well, yep. his wife was an absolute trooper for, uh, personally, I think she wanted to get him out of the house because he was probably being a bit of a nervous Nelly, a little bit mm-hmm, of a mm-hmm. dad to be. And, uh, and so, yeah, he spent the full day with me. It was, it was magnificent. That's amazing. Well, congrats to the Amamons. Exactly. Uh, young Reina is the latest Amamon on the scene. <laughs> Reina, that's a beautiful name. Isn't it? That's what I told him. So those of you who are wondering who the heck we're talking about, who Elijah Amamon is, uh, he works with JVS, who is our California distributor. He's also an avid uh, listener of One Nation Under Whiskey, and he sent in a few questions, and we've answered most of them, hopefully to his satisfaction. And he just sends us nice messages now and again. So He is also a wonderful champion of Single Cast Nation in Orange County. He and is the champion, Elijah Amamon. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how I remember that song. And so, yeah, he is he is really uh, doing great work uh, for the brand and, and, and many of the other brands that he represents as well. Yep. And and I also appreciate it. He's a he's a good lad. I reach out to him at all hours to get information about where some of our nation members can find some of the retail bottlings, and he gets back to me as quick as he possibly can. And even in having a child with his wife, he's still very reliable and very hardworking. Yep. So, yep. Well done, good. Elijah. Well done. You're a good and, man. And to his wife and to uh-huh. Reina. Um, so, 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 we really need to get to why we're here yeah. at the podcast. Can you illuminate? Absolutely. I had the distinct pleasure of spending time with Alan Grablauskas at uh-huh. the wonderful Oya Mel restaurant in Washington, D.C. back in the middle of June. Oh, okay. So and this was 
it's just a few months back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we've 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 had some catching up to do, and mm-hmm. you know, we work hard to catch up. Yeah. And earlier in the year, when we launched our single cast nation uh, Fidencio, our Reposado, and our Añejo, mm. Alan reached out and said, "You know, I'm the the spirits director at Oyamel." Uh, Oyamel, by the way, owned by Jose Andreas, one of my absolute favourite chefs on the planet, and would love to interview him one day for the podcast, but a boy can dream. I've never heard that name before. You're a terrible human being, Joshua, (laughs) and I've never hated you more. Oh, Jose Andreas, he had a fantastic show on PBS called Made in Spain. Oh, and, interesting. Uh, and when my eldest was young, he and I would sit on the couch and watch Made in Spain. That's awesome. And part of the program would be Jose Andreas in Spain, talking about the regions, food from the regions, what were they known for? It was really, really fantastic. And then another part would be him back in his kitchen in D.C., mm-hmm. uh, or wherever his kitchen actually is. Um but it would be him in his kitchen making some of these dishes. Oh, he just seems like such a nice, nice human being. That's cool. He does a ton of work for charity as well. So, okay, so... So we're at Oyamel, yeah. Jose Andres' restaurant, with the very knowledgeable yeah. Alan Grablauskas uh-huh. talking uh-huh. all things mezcal. And so this is my question to you. Most of our interviews have been with distillery managers independent bottlers, brand owners, brand owners, uh, visitor center managers, etc. And so here you're interviewing a spirits buyer at a restaurant and I'm curious I would I, maybe I, call Alan a spirits curator rather a cu- than a spirits right, buyer. right and and so the point that I'm trying to get at is yes there's so many cogs in the <laughs> whiskey machine, right? <laughs> And yeah. every, every, not just whiskey, but there's so many cogs in the drinks industry machine. Yeah. And we've highlighted, you know, big names that everybody knows, uh, you know, Eddie Russell and, and, and all these. And a lot of people may not know who Alan is mm-hmm. or, or why we're interviewing him. And, and obviously, it was important enough for us to have him on this podcast. So so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's that's a smart way of framing it because there there is a little middle portion that I did leave out. Yeah. Which is he had reached out. That was mm-hmm. an email from the blue, a, a guy interested in our product. That's always exciting. Mm-hmm. I had then gone through to DC uh, actually, it was a to visit a market visit with our Mid Atlantic distributor, Prestige Ledroit, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, there there hadn't been time on the the first day to stop by and and see Oyamel and meet Alan in person yeah. with our local rep. But as the stars would have it, Ooh. we all ended up at the same bar that night. <laughs> Oh, nice. Uh, and I had a chance to start speaking to Alan just very briefly. Uh, really liked him off the cuff. Genuine, sweet, sweet guy. Uh, and clearly passionate about mezcals and, and other spirits, as we'll hear today. We then ended up, as one does, as you were just kind of alluding to earlier in this podcast, we ended up back at um, someone's house. 
drinking a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm drinking a lot of really tasty, unreleased uh, stuff. And and so I got to kind of pay attention to Alan's palate and how he tasted and how he thought about spirits. Mm. Uh, and again, we just continued to hit it off. It then so happened that the next day, the rep and I were able to go by Oyamel. We were able to taste Alan on the agave product mm. that mm. we have. I also tasted it on some of our, our nation whiskeys. Oh, nice. Uh, his is he a whiskey fan? He is very much is, so. His yeah, girlfriend's yeah. actually uh, a large part of Jack Rose, which we mention a lot as well. Yeah. What What? What does she do at, at Jack Rose? Uh, she is on the, the whiskey side there and, and the whiskey curating side over there. Wow. So they're, they're a little... Um, power they're couple. A, a power, couple. power couple. Yeah, look at that. Spirits like power it. couple. Spirits power couple. Um, and, so, and so then, yo... Talking to Alan over a bite of food. He's talking about the food. The food was amazing, absolutely out of this world. I'm pouring him product. As we tend to do in spirit circles, he's then bouncing off. Oh, as he's mentioning things, you should try this. Mm. Uh, We'll actually circle back to it in today's interview. Uh, He actually poured me Sotol for the first time. Um, Both a Sotol from Fidencio and... And a Sotol, um, Sotol Per Siempre, uh, which is yep. by the Nostra Soledad people as well, uh, which is a mezcal that I happen to love uh, that they produce. So the Sotol that Arik Torin mm-hmm. does, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not Fidencio. He has that under another brand, doesn't he? La. <laughs> oh, dear. Sometimes it's a real stretch to be Scottish pronouncing these okay, names. Okay, g- show it to me and I'll I'll pronounce it. <laughs> oh, okay. M- move it move it to your right a bit. La Higuera. Oh, La Higuera. Yeah. So listeners but then, know. But then look yeah. at the two words under the La Higuera. What are those two words? Yeah, those are nonsensical. Don't even try. <laughs> 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 Whoa, that Desilirion and Cedrosanum. And I apologize for butchering that. But anyway. Which, so, which, which believe yes. it or not, yes. is, is Spanish for uh, up your nose with a rubber hose. <laughs> That's terrible. Terrible. Uh, so, so anyway, so Alan's pouring me the Satols. We're, I'm pouring him our Fidencio Reposado Añejo. Mm-hmm. He's pulling out the Ricea. And then I'm pulling out the scotch. And, wow. and, I, and I said to him then, like, dude, I have to come back and interview you. This wow. has to happen for One Nation Under wow. Whiskey. okay. Uh, and he said, no, I would love for that to happen. Let me know a time. Boom, turned into the middle of June. I went through. He was my only reason for heading through to D.C. We sat, we drank, we talked. And this is why, Joshua Hatton, we're going to have something a little different in the podcast. We're mm. always doing things a little different around here to keep it fresh, to keep it, yeah. you know, change it up in the bedroom a little bit. We talked about yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. And so we're actually going to do some tasting notes with Alan today. Oh, that's and brilliant. one of the things that I wanted to take him okay. was a product out of the whiskey exchange in the UK uh-huh. 
called Papa Diablo oh, Especial. So good. So good. Right? I've poured it for you. I've you know helped you acquire bottles of it. Uh-huh. Um, I pour it I, for every person. I, I, they say they like mezcal. It's like, you've got to try this. Me too, 100%. Yeah, yeah, and I good. even used it. And I, and I told Alan this. I don't know if it ends up in the, in the interview, but I told Alan this. I am trying to show you my worthiness by bringing you this Papa Diablo. Yeah. I'm trying to show you that I know just enough to be dangerous <laughs> in this category. <laughs> and, and so later in the interview, we'll actually discuss Papa Diablo Especial. Okay. We'll talk about the agave. We'll talk about kind of what to expect from, from the plant itself. Okay. Um, but before we get to that part of the podcast, I wanted to set the table by talking a little bit about production. How, how, do, you, how do you feel about jumping in on production? I, th- I, I love this. What, what, I, what I like the way the, dir- the direction that this podcast is going is it seems like we're almost setting it up as a deeper dive into mezcal, right? Because we interviewed Arik Torin, which I don't know if listeners can just find it. It was maybe two years ago now. And, and that was more of a deep dive into Fidencio, some of the history as well. Mm-hmm. I think we may have touched on production, but it almost sounds like we're going to go a bit deeper in production and you're, you're going to go a bit deeper into agaves later on and what those different agaves are doing and why they're doing what they're doing. Exactly. And yeah, one of the things okay. for me is when you were in Oaxaca and talking to Arik, you got to see the production firsthand. Yes. Got to start making much more sense to you. Yep. I'm still playing catch up in that regard, even though mm-hmm. I've listened to the interview, you and I have discussed it, I've spoken to other knowledgeable people, I'm still filling in the gaps. And so I'm still asking those cuts questions, mm. right? Are, are cuts being made? Where are they being made? How are they being made? Where does the strength lie? Yeah. Right? Remember, the thing for me is I'm always bouncing into new categories from the Scotch world. Of course. All, all of my understanding of spirits has Scotch as a foundation. And I think, given that we're One Nation Under Whiskey podcast, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are using that as their foundation as well. Mm-hmm. So so let's give Alan the floor for a bit of time here. He and I will go back and forth here. I'll ask some questions along the way of him and we'll get his answers registered. Beautiful. Talk to me a little bit about distillation and what are we seeing mezcal coming off the still at and what is the goal of the producer in now having that spirit in front of them uh, so the puntas are like the first cut um, I've had them in the mid to low 60s um, at some of the stills I've been at um, and needless to say very hot you definitely get a lot of different flavor tones um, some more of the florality uh, it's definitely more prevalent on that but what you get up front dissipates so quick off of that so with the with the higher proofs and the higher percentages we just want to from the producer standpoint if it's first distillation second distillation whatever it is just getting to the core and making sure that you're not having the notes that are there fade so fast that's okay. pretty much what I've found Okay. because it's the production and the longevity of the growth of the plant you want to make sure that you can extend 
the uh, your palate as long as you can because they've already had to extend their growth life of you know, 7, 10, 20, 30 years. So just keep it going and don't let it fade so quick. Okay. Because one of the things, and, and again, I do this when I come to bourbon. I do this when I come to mezcal. I'm a scotch guy. Everything I know is scotch. For me, when it runs from the still, it might, the heart might go anywhere from mid-70s to mid-60s. It'll all be collected. It then goes into wood and it'll all be brought to the same ABV of 63.5 to go into wood for then multiple years of, of maturation. Given that mezcal is still to bottle, mm-hmm. will there be distillate control that brings the ABV down so that all those flavors are prevalent on the palate? Will they cut it with water before it goes into bottle? Will it depend on producer? What's your experience there? Uh, it's producer by producer. Sometimes it'll be uh, well water that's on property. Sometimes it'll be mineral water from the nearest, nearby town if they don't feel the water quality is exactly where they want it to be near them. Um, sometimes it'll be the Punta San Colas or the cuts. So it just depends on where they're going and how they want it to taste. So, okay. you know, some producers would rather use a flavoring agent, uh, like some of the distillate that they've already cut out, to bring it down. And then uh, some people would rather have it be the well water or mineral water that's in their region to bring it down to the proof that they want. Let me pause you for two seconds. Mm-hmm. You, you said two different things that I want to expand upon. Okay. You threw some Spanish at me there. Okay. Uh, Scottish boy in front of you. Uh, we're going to go back and what was the Spanish that you just threw at me? Mm-hmm. And then did you just say they would take some of the lower distilled product mm-hmm. to cut the, yes. the distillate at, that's coming off at a higher temperature? Correct. So, so talk to me about that part, and then we'll double back on the Spanish. Okay. So um, say with your secondary cut, because that's the lower ABV, you can taste that and see if any of that's worth using again. So they'll cut it, and if they want to be cautionary, they'll keep the heart of what they want to go in the bottle, and they know that this is what they want. So depending on how they feel the the second cut is coming out, if they feel that's a viable option to go back in to reduce the uh, percentage, then they can use that because it's already bringing more flavor back in versus just reducing both flavor and alcohol. Wow. Wow. Okay. So so, so I'm going to pause on the pause. Okay. So talk a little bit about distillation then. Now I'm learning there's a whole distillation process here that I don't know much about. So... First cut, second cut, is there a third cut? What's what's happening there through distillation? So initially the uh, the first cut, uh, putas. So a lot of people will bottle that as your higher proof. Um, so if you're looking, say, Fidencio, um, Arik will use it in the uh, La Venenosa Ricea. So there's a beautiful uh, blue and gold label they use for La Venenosa. Yeah. And that, I want to say, comes in at 60%. Okay. So that would be, you know, the, the top cut, the top percentage, and he's going straight to bottle with that. Single distillation, so he's taking the everything that he wants in that, brings out about 60%, if I remember correctly, or, and then just goes straight to the bottle. Okay. So some people use that because there's a lot of, to me, what I found on those is more floral notes. Definitely a higher heat, but with the floral notes, they kind of dissipate quicker with the higher heat and the higher alcohol percentage. Okay. And then uh, 
with the with the back end, the lower ABV, they're called colas, just like Coca-Cola, lack of better terms. <laughs> so lower ABV, um, still going to be a lot of flavor in there. Sometimes it's flavor you don't want. Sometimes it's flavor that can be useful. Um, if you're looking at something, your roast came out too sweet, so your that back end of what's left coming out after the ABV that you're looking for that would go into the bottle, uh -huh. then you can still use that to impart more flavor. Like if it, the roast comes out too sweet, maybe the back end is a little bit bitter, but you're looking for that to balance out what goes into the bottle. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, so then what type of range would you have on beginning percentage of cut that would even be on that high end that would go into a higher ABV bottle? How far are they then running the cut to take it down to the end of distillation? I think the highest I've had straight out of the still, and again, this is best I can remember. There have been some long days on these trips. <laughs> I, I want to say uh, mid-60s is pretty much what I remember as the higher end. Okay. Um, so for, for us, that's still pretty high in the mezcal world. Um, so you you're probably starting to taste somewhere in the 70s to 60s, just depending, but the, mezca the Mesa Mescaleros are so precise. They're looking at time, and it's usually just, a lot of times it's a bamboo shoot that's coming out, and then you can get your reading off of that, and then you can just watch it. It's how the, the bubbles, or the Las Perlas, the pearls, it's how long they sit and the size of the, of the bubbles themselves. So the pearls tell you a story every time you pour a little bit out. So Brilliant. if it's straight out of the still, and then um, they'll take the bamboo, they'll raise it up to their preferred distance, and then just you know let it drip down into their hakata or the uh, gourd that they'll be using. And then just depending on the size of the pearls, the longevity of how long they last, there's a lot of variables. Okay. And, if you, and if you're doing that you know, time, time over time, year over year, you get used to it. You've been watching your grandfather do it, your father do it, your uncle do it, your aunts do it. You know, whoever in your family that's been doing it, um, you know, you just get to learn how what the reaction is, especially for your family-specific uh, palenques. Is anything happening with the higher end of the alcohol? So when they first do their run uh, in Scotland, for us, that's the four shots or the heads. Right. Are they going to re-distill that? Are they going to use it as cleaner as some craft distillers do in America? What will happen to the, the first portion that's not of usable material? Um, it'll usually still, it will continue to run in the still, typically. Um, so they'll measure it and it'll run until it lowers in the ABV, but some people will pull it for the secondary uses. Um, again, it's maker by maker, so there's a lot of pieces that can change in it. Okay, okay. So, so it sounds like heads will be caught, tails will be caught, and then producer will decide what they need each one to do uh, right. going forward with that. Right. So it'll either be continually distilled until they get the product they want, or the cuts can be made. Awesome. It's maker by maker. It's it's totally like. Each region, like just in the state of Oaxaca, Puebla, Durango, like whatever state we're talking about, you know, there can be, you know, hundreds of producers and each one, you know, brother to sister, father to son can be a little bit different. Typically, the lineage in the family stays relatively close. Um, but, you know, if if we were brothers, 
and we had side by side. I feel like we are, Alan. I feel like we are. We're getting there. Thank you. Uh, And then, like your your distillation, and when you pull your mezcal, can be totally different than mine. You know, the wood that we roast on. You know, how we make our cuts, the agaves that we choose. So many variables from you know neighboring palenques. It's just amazing. But I think it speaks to the strength of the category, where you have that level of variability, and. Again, one of the things that we encounter when talking to producers is oftentimes we hear consistency. We want to we want to be consistent, but it's really nice to have producers who can be consistent in a field that can be wildly variable. So you're still getting quality of product, but it then makes sense to go from release A to release B to release C and have something different happen each time. Right. I'm sure you see that here with a back bar of 147 bottles. Of so is that mezcal and ricea and just mezcal? So like when when I'm you know doing my little nerdiness and you know looking through my spreadsheets, you know we break it down by other agaves and then tequila and then mezcal. So our other agaves is a much smaller section in comparison, but we've chose to grow in our mezcal to take over our tequila. Because tequilas are, they are not quite as widespread. You know, a lot of variables, but the different styles of agave within themselves lend mezcal to being a wider field. So we wanted to expand on that. Hopefully that gives our listeners an idea of what goes into the production of agave spirit. Yeah, gave me a good reminder. It was good to hear that. And it's kind of essential to keep dipping toes into those areas as well, especially when we're not dealing with it every single day, Mm. Uh, whereas Alan most definitely is and that level of knowledge that he has as somebody representing Mezcal and Agave product in the US, um, which he does so well. Mm. But as I alluded to earlier, I took along my own little measuring stick to show him that I was worthy of his time. Excuse me while I whip this out. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. Always the measuring stick with you. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people I met in California who said, is it really always the penis with Joshua? And I said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. The nice people who came out of Philippe Fanivon got to spend some good time with him. Good guy. Good, Um, good guy. Really good guy. Uh, I got to call him Philip. He corrected me really quickly, which uh, always helps. You call him Philip? I just love the fact I didn't fuck up Fanivong, but I fucked up Philippe. So here we are. And he brought a great crowd to the whiskey shop. We got to hang out for a good amount of time. Oh, that's Uh, awesome. Yeah, really, really fun. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So getting a little sidetracked here. So... So my little measuring stick, because uh-huh. you, you only need the little one. <laughs> yeah, oh, given your n- overall knowledge of mezcal, that's what we're talking about, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Given my overall pronunciation within the category, um, yeah. That's why I like Papa Diablo so much. I can pronounce it first time every time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I so I wanted to I wanted to show Papa Diablo. To Alan. And given that it's the Especial release, Mm -hmm. there are multiple agaves at play in this distilled spirit. And 
again, given Alan's knowledge, I left him pr- to pronounce the agaves that are in it. So I remember three. <clears throat> oh, I, remember- I, I think you're just blanking on the most obvious. So give me your three. Espadine. Oh, okay. That's the one I thought you were blanking on. Yeah. Baikuiche, Madraquiche. Okay. And the last one, is it Tepestate or is it? No, it's Mexicano. You're just going to have to listen to what Alan says in a moment. I'm not giving you the answer. Um, (laughs) Son of a bitch. (laughs) But the thing I want to add in here is I was asking him specific questions about what those agaves bring to the table. Hmm. And then we kind of got sidetracked, as we tend to do, in other areas of agave production. Not distillation, Mm. but actually the the farming of the crop, agave. Yeah. So we discussed a few elements in there, and then we pivot back to the tasting Mm -hmm. and... And so this is a this is just a lovely kind of far-reaching conversation that we're having, a nice back and forth, while we've got Papa Diablo in glass in front of us. And as he's talking, I'm sipping. And then later on, as we pivot back, he does a bit more of a deep dive in it. So I, you know, I would say to you to the listener, if you're able, pour a Papa Diablo, sit back and listen to this segment. Yeah. If not, pour your absolute favorite mezcal or agave spirit, sit back and enjoy this segment. Let, let me just throw in a little signpost here for um, our whiskey-focused mm-hmm, listeners, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is pretty much m- most people it, listening They're to our this. bread and butter, and we thank them for it. You can compare, and, and Alan may talk about this. I haven't listened to this portion yet, but he may touch on this. Because mezcal production is almost the opposite of whiskey production in that you are relying on the agave, the different kinds of agaves to provide different flavors, the same way you would rely on different kinds of casks to give you flavors. I think it's good for people when they when they see bottles of mezcal or if they see a blended mezcal like this one to almost view an agave plant like a different kind of a cask. Bourbon casts do one thing, sherry casts do another, port casts do another, etc. And, you know, uh, we mentioned Espadín, Baiquiche, Madraquiche, all of these different agaves do different things. And I know Alan talks about this, but I think it might be good for the whiskey listener to almost compare a different agave to a different type of oak. Yeah, yeah. Does that make I, sense? I, I think I do. I, I'd be I'd be careful of going too far with that, but I, I get what you're generally trying to say. The other interesting aspect for me, uh, and I just had a friend of ours, Robert Horton, who's out in San Francisco and knows a ton about mezcal as well, and he kind of reinforced this for me just the other week when I saw him. Almost all mezcal producers in Mexico are producing batches of agave spirit. Mm-hmm. And and when we as whiskey people wander around and we think the single cask is the purest of the pure and we then come to mezcal and agave spirit and we think, oh, I just want single agave in there. I just want to be able to taste the single agave mm-hmm. to see what it does, to see what the influence is. Even the question that I lead with here in talking to Alan 
that's not really a mezcal question. It's not really how they produce. And so it's interesting to see these whiskey biases batting back and forth mm. as we explore new products as well. So okay. yeah. So I, I think we're, we're setting a, a lot of parts of the table here. Let's throw it over to Alan, see what Alan covers here. Good, good, good. So cork is off and it's time to pour. Brilliant. Okay. So this will be my first taste on this, which I am super excited for. Yeah, and, I, and again, not a gotcha for you at all. Just uh, what do you get? What do you find? What do you think? So um, this is Papa Diablo Especial. Uh, we're coming in at 47.5%. It is a blend of four different agaves. Agave Espedin, Baiquiche, Madre Quiche, and Mexicano. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and this is hailing from Oaxaca, Mexico. And you said this is... UK exclusive. There we go. Yeah. And so I picked up uh, this bottle from the Whiskey Exchange. And they have a, a straight up Espadine offering. And then they've got this blend of four uh, agaves. And I first learned about this bottle in Tom Bullock's book, The Mezcal Experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which, which blew me away. I absolutely loved his book. And at some point, I would love to interview him for the podcast as well. That'd be, um, that'd be an amazing interview. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to learn from him in this sphere as well. Um, but be, we'll double back into this in a second. But okay. talk to me. Obviously, a lot of the Mezcals that I encounter, since I'm still learning the category, are Espadine. Right. Is there a reason why we're encountering so many Espadines? And then what's happening in that wider field as one moves away from Espadine? Right. So depending on the agave, um, some people say there's upwards of 30, 40 different agaves that can be distilled. Um, and again, there are some that have, just like with wine grapes, there are going to be some of the exact same grape with different names. So to pinpoint exactly how many are being distilled in Mexico right now, it's nearly impossible. So agave espadine is widely known as the workhorse. So okay, makes sense. Um, it is younger in growth. It's kind of hard to say that you know you, when you're growing something seven to nine years that it's a young growth. Still seems like a serious commitment. Oh, I mean, think about some whiskeys that are being pulled right now at you know seven, eight, nine years of age, yep. and it's considered a young whiskey. Exactly. We're, we're trying to maintain a plant, or the growers are trying to maintain a plant for seven to nine years. You know, that's, you know, if we have a kid, then all of a sudden that's that's their youngster ages. All yeah. of a sudden, they're, we're kicking them off to school by the time the agave is ready to harvest. <laughs> so agave espadine is widely known as the workhorse. So that's why you see so much of it. Um, again, to not rush it and to get the the prime sugar content that you're looking for to make sure that when you're roasting it, you're getting the flavors that you're looking for. Each batch is going to be incredibly different. Um, just like how when you've got the whiskey barrels, the way the seasons interact with the barrels, yeah. the, the temperature and you know where you're storing it in the whiskey, in the scotch world, you know, are you right next to the sea? You know, that makes a huge impact <laughs> in, on the flavor profile, right? So, you know, with the Espadine, as we touched on Nuestra Soledad, the seven main ones that they've got are all agave espadine from different locations within Oaxaca. Right. So you see how uh, just the terroir and the different producers 
can create such an incredible dynamic difference. Um, and that's one of my favorite ways to show off Agave Espadine. Um, there are a couple different producers, uh, Delmagay being the original because they've been doing it for 25 years. Um, a lot of their single villages use Agave Espadine, but people don't realize that or don't necessarily always think about that because it says Chichicapa. It mm-hmm. says, you know, the village that it's coming from. So with that being the workhorse, um, Madre Quiche and Baquiche are going to be uh, from the same family. So we've got agaves, and then you've got a variety of different uh, subfamilies. Okay. If we got science, scientific and nerdy about it, please. then, then you can get down into the flavor profiles that you're looking for. Yep, please. Um, so Madre Quiche and Baquiche um, are some of my favorites. I love the Quiche family. Um, to me, uh, when they're bottled, there's always going to be some great vegetal tones. Uh, the roasts on them bring me to a slightly more acidic side. Um, so that combination is kind of the sweet spot that I look for. The roasting doesn't go too far to the sweetness. Um, slight green tones, uh, but but the acid in the mouthfeel to me uh, typically gets a little bit drier. Okay. Um, so it doesn't have to just linger and linger. The flavor will hit. It'll dissipate, and to me, that usually leads to a longer finish. I get that off cliches a lot. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm cheating and actually sipping this okay. as you're describing that. Right. And as you were describing, that's exactly what was happening in my palate. Oh, perfect. Uh, e- even to the drying out portion of <laughs> right. it, you were spot on. Almost even gets a little chalky mid-palate. Right, right. And not in an unpleasant way, but just that intense drying and then that long, deep finish to right. it. So... Yeah, sorry for cheating on that one, but no, not at all. You were spot on. Well, I haven't had a sip yet, so I guess we're doing all right. You have not. Uh, and then Mexicano. Uh, Mexicano is going to be a little bit longer of a uh, growth as well. Um, uh, the Baquiche and Madre Quiche. Uh, Madre Quiche being the mother of the Quiche, so it, it's ah. it's larger. So the Quiche will be the smaller growth. The Madre Quiche, the mother Fantastic. of that, will be their. In agave terms, brother and sister, but one will be larger than the other. Um, if my memory serves me correctly, and we are being recorded, so I guess you can hold me to it. Um, <laughs> so we're looking at typically like 14 to 20 years in growth for okay. the quiches. And then uh, Mexicano, I want to say it's typically 18 to 25, somewhere in that range. Okay. And again, I'm not perfect on the growth length, sure, but sure. if my memory serves me correct, it is longer on that on that end for the uh, Mexicano versus the Quiches. Um, and then any other, you're you're such a remarkable resource. Are there other agaves that you like that you look for? <laughs> like I, I've never asked another human being that question in my life, and I'm honored to get to ask you <laughs> that question. I do love the Quiches. I'm a sucker for Tobala. Okay. Um, okay. If I'm looking for something a little bit on the sweeter side, and this is just a broad paint stroke, Tobala has typically a little bit more of like the roasted fruits or grilled fruits for me, depending on the maker. But definitely like the roasted tropical fruits is what I get out of Tobala a lot. So super easy to drink. If I'm going to have a party and there's going to be 10 people and people are going to want to try mezcal, that is one of my go-tos that's non-espadine just because it, it brings a little bit more juiciness, some more residual sugars to me. Okay. And it, you know, the... The couple that I think of definitely uh, bring a little backstory to it, so it's it's easier to tell a story. And you know, you know, with the bottles that you that you bring around, it's that little bit of a story gets people hooked a little bit Absolutely. easier, and then it makes our mind wander. And then as much as your mind can wander, it 
keeps it working while you're sipping what's in your glass. What'd you get, just even quickly, what'd you get on the nose, the palate? I'm just curious, given your, your wealth of experience. I definitely go a lot more green herbs. Um, I don't want to say I'm going right back to that menthol, but I can definitely get some of that there. I mean, I, I absolutely think that the, the mintiness, the green herbs, some just a light sweetness, not too much. But so green, so grassy, mm -hmm. so fresh. I'm so happy the dryness is there. <laughs> Dude, just a little bit of sugars on the back, like a like an underripe peach. So just mm. a little bit of the stone fruit there, but underripe, so you're not getting a big, juicy, lush peach. Oh no, no. The emphasis is on the stone of that peach, which to me lends itself to that dryness, almost the. So I. I have a thing where I can't actually touch peaches or eat them because the, oh, really? the furry skin okay. it gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> my skin crawls. Right. Um, but then it gives me this like dried out feeling. Right. And it's really funny that right now I've got that dried out feeling happening on my tongue and around my teeth. Yep. It's it, remarkable. A crazy, a crazy thing our master Sam does, and it's not the same one, but it tastes like I licked a rock. Like slate, yes. you know, like the the slate limestone. Yes. yes. And yes, he licks rocks. Yeah, right. Yes, Andy Myers <laughs> licks rocks. <laughs> uh, and like when I was training for my SOM certification, I I also licked rocks <laughs> because he said there was a difference. I didn't believe him. I needed to make sure it was a rock that he hadn't licked. But I have licked rocks. <laughs> he licked one getting, side. You licked the other side. No, totally it's... different rocks. <laughs> You're not Eskimo Brothers for rocks now or anything. No. <laughs> Unless he played a dirty, dirty trick on me. This one's damp from the sea. Don't worry about it. Just took it out of the fish tank. But I also want to ask you a question that I've heard since I first started getting into mezcal is that there's a slight worry around the category that <laughs> what made it wonderful? what made it worth exploring and discovering and sharing and spreading the gospel is the thing that might work against it, that it might be overconsumed, it might be unsustainable. Again, given your trips down there, given your knowledge and experience, what do you see for the future of Mezcal? And is there anything that gives you pause within the category? Um. There's always going to be a pause. Um, we saw it hit tequila. So unfortunately for one agave uh, production style to have to take the hits for anything else that's going to expand, um, the world of Mezcal is, was already on a little bit of a track to watch what happened to, their, to everybody in the tequila world. Over-industrializing, leading to shortages. And tequila is still fighting that. Mezcal is on the verge in some portions to be fighting that. Okay. Um, just because there's an overall agave shortage throughout all of Mexico. So where are people stealing agaves from? Is it what's actually on the label? Um, is there concern? Absolutely. Um, we want to make sure that you know the, the larger brands of Mezcal are still... You know, not harvesting too early, not giving the right sugar content, because then, you know, what's really happening? Could there be a mask up at some point, like they were doing mixto tequilas? 
So we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. What's that word? Mixto. So uh, mixto, not to say, we all know this uh, gold tequila comes in a large square bottle. Uh-huh. So that is a mixto. So it is uh, 51% agave, 49% other things. Mm. Could be sugarcane distillate. It could be whatever they put in there. There are some other regulations without getting too nerdy into it. But once they hit 51% uh, tequila or 51% agave, then they can call it a mixto agave spirit, mixto tequila. Okay. So, they can still use the T word. Yep. Okay. So, and that's another reason that you want to look at, look for the mezcal hologram to make sure everything is certified the way that we would want it to be. It is a pure product. Um, so yes, there definitely is. Um, some of the items that we've seen are trying to figure out how to semi-cultivate the wild agave spirit, the wild agaves, so we can continue those. Um, what we mentioned earlier, Atacano, it takes up to 30 years to grow. Holy moly. I mean, think about how do we project down the road that that is going to be a shortage. Yeah. Like that's one of those things yeah. you can never pinpoint. That's why there's very, very few out there. We only have three in total. So, I mean, that within itself, I know that I've got one bottle that's about halfway done. And when that's gone, I don't even know when I'm getting that back. And that's <laughs> from a producer we've got a beautiful relationship with. So, oh, okay. So, I mean, they're just saying, hey, they're not ready, they're not ready, we're not harvesting, we're not pushing it. So, which, which you want to reward on one hand and on the other hand worry about yourself. Right, you're just toe-tapping until <laughs> that next you know, production, you get worried about it. Um, so, yes, there's always going to be uh, that worry. Um, Rogelio, there's a gentleman that we call the Batman of, of Agave, the Batman of Mexico. Um, take a look at his uh, Instagram sometime. It's absolutely fascinating. Okay. Um, so, there is uh, the Bat Foundation... Um, so with that, um, certain agave producers will let the quijotes or the reproductive shoots come out of the agave. They'll let it grow to full maturity that way, which unfortunately kills that agave that you've been watching grow for 7, 8, 10, 12 years. But by letting it grow, you get the seeds, you get the pollination from the bats, and then that lets everything happen naturally. Um, so some, some producers are doing, I believe the exact number is 10% of their agave fields will let the quijotes grow. So huh. you're losing 10% of your harvest, but by doing that, the bats will help spread, the bats and birds will help spread the seeds, the bats will cross-pollinate, keeps everything natural, and that way you're not cross-breeding anything, right? So we all know how tomatoes are tomatoes nowadays, and that's why we look for heirloom tomatoes, uh -huh. our, our chefs do. Uh -huh. if, I'm, if I'm cooking at home, you know, maybe I'll get a, a Roma tomato for a sauce, and it'll be a specific tomato, but the crossbreeds and the way we're producing tomatoes now, we don't want agave to get there. No, and but I think there's good foresight in place. Yes. And I think that can speak back to, yes, there's a hologram, yes, there's a designation, right. yes, there's protection, right. but there's a lot of good that can come from that type of protection as well. Yes, so uh, the bat-friendly um, agave spirits. Yes. Um, we actually got to see and spend a lot of time with him. Got to see his documentary, got to uh, hang out. We were out uh, by the production site in uh, El Lomon and uh, Pino Benito in Michoacan, where everything is done bat-friendly. And that's just the way nature works with the cuprieta. Fantastic. So that style of agave, um, with everything being naturally bat-friendly, just because of the way that everything processes, you know, it's, it's a beautiful way for it to work out there. And because they don't... <laughs> They don't breed, you know, with offshoots. Mm -hmm. So certain agaves, the agave espadine, you can have, or uh, the blue Weber, you can have offshoots coming off the base. 
and then you can pick that cross and then just walk over plant it right down the street and then they'll start growing gotcha so you gotta be careful with what we're doing out there you gotta be very very careful okay so so we've nailed down production we've nailed down agave uh where those flavors come from we've talked about potential agave shortages we talked about the batman of mexico which you know (laughs) look him up yeah, I, right. I implore our listeners, go ahead yeah. and do that. There's a lot of clips. You get to see some documentary. Well, well worth your time. Really oh. fascinating stuff. I, you know, the comic book fan in me, you know, <laughs> just, just wishes that he wears the costume. And, uh, and his partner used to be, uh, you know, in the circus or Cirque du Soleil. But, but anyway, uh, so, so, so we've, we've touched on this stuff. Something that you guys talked about, I, I think, is 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 a really interesting thing that most people don't even think about, and that is something called the DO, mm-hmm. right? Which stands for that is denominations of origin. Joshua, got it. So, very similar to <laughs> very similar to the fact that. Champagne can only be made in the Champagne region oh, of France. Oh, I say this in all my tastings. Preach, brother, preach! <laughs> cognac is made in Cognac. Oh, Armagnac yes! is made in Armagnac. Yes! Bourbon is made in America. Oh, preach! <laughs> mezcal. Yeah, what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, where was it going? So mez- mezcal is... So there are many different states within the country of Mexico. 32, I believe. Yep. And the DO, the denomination of origin for mezcal, is only, that word mezcal can only be used in nine of the agave spirits producing states. That's very true. All true. And so, you know, just like Italy has Prosecco, which is sort of maybe their version of champagne, and and in Australia, they make fortified wines like Pedro Jimenez, but they just call it PX because they can't call it Pedro Jimenez. <laughs> you know, there's another agave spirit known as Ricea. Mm-hmm. This and, is true. Right? And, and then there's another... And it's not even really an agave. It's a different kind of a plant. There's another spirit that they make called sotol. Mm-hmm. From the desert spoon. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, again, looking at this from the perspective of our interview with Arctorn was our baseline into the world of mezcal, sharing the world of agave spirits to our listeners. Here we are getting a deeper dive and now we're learning about these other spirits that uh, I'll, I'll almost guarantee 90% of our listeners have not heard of Ricea. They well, may have heard of Sotal. And so, so two points to make here. Number one, Ricea is an agave product that we know of in America that can be called mezcal. Every region in Mexico yeah. that has an agave spirit will have its own name for it when it's not allowed to call it mezcal because of the deal. But but it is mezcal. Oh, it's right? mezcal. You just, you just legally can't. It. Yeah, it's you just exactly. legally cannot call it mezcal. Exactly, exactly. But, yeah. but I would say Ricea is only one that 
we have heard of here in America. And then point number two is, again, you know, I, I like the fact that we keep having these echoes back to whiskey and certainly back to whiskey biases mm-hmm. as you and I, and, and Alan and I will touch upon it in the segment you're about to hear, but as you and I select a whiskey, and we talk about this at all of our tastings, what are we looking for? A thread that goes from nose to palate to finish. We want some level of consistency there, some type mm-hmm. of character development. Mm-hmm. And if a few things come in on the sides, that's okay, so long as it fits with the main thread. If something just completely comes out of left field in the palate, we mm. might consider that an, an off note, a presence that we don't want. Yeah. They're, they're, it's going to complicate matters. Yeah, yeah. In the Ricea's that I've tasted with Alan, being disconnected is not a problem at all. It's almost part of the experience. And he's going to talk in this little segment wow. about some absolutely wacky experiences that exist from nose to palate, from palate to nose that exist within the world of Ricea that we would never entertain in the world of whiskey. So you're almost looking for wackiness, bizarreness, uh, a trip. Well, given when you hear a little bit about production techniques, it might speak to the wackiness of (laughs) Ricea. Let's hand it back over to Al and get some answers to what the hell you and I are rambling about right now. (laughs) Within Mezcal, one of the bottles, actually both of our bottles, and the two additions that we have on the table in front of us, all have the hologram here. Yes. And so the hologram is there to protect the category. Correct. Can you talk a little bit to what that hologram means within the category? So that is just to say that it is a certified mezcal. Um, so sticking with more of the basics on it within a certain denomination of origins. So we just highlighted Michoacan, who just got to be a recognized denomination of origin in 2012. Okay. Um, so with that, it's they will be tested regularly. Um, if you are looking to make any changes, you have to go through the uh, CRM. The, the Mezcal Regulatory Board. Okay. And, you know, just making sure that what you're serving is what you're serving instead of, you know, mixing uh, mixing any cuts that shouldn't be there. You know, what is pure agave? What what are you really putting in your bottle? Is it really, really 100% you know, espadine? Are you mixing items that don't belong in there? Um, I think that the Mezcal Regulatory Board is learning more from what happened in the world of tequila. Okay. So when you're making more mixtos, you're putting in caramel coloring, artificial flavoring. Instead of 100% Blue Weber agave, you're mixing in any other random agaves. You know, what's pure and what's not. Yeah. So the Mezcal Regulatory Board has been a, a lot tighter from what I've seen, what I've heard, and what I've read. So I think that just them making sure they're doing their due diligence, that's that's why you need to make sure that you're looking for the... Uh, the seal from the mezcal, the hologram that's there. So one of the strengths and weaknesses that we've got in Scotland, and we've talked about it many, many, many times in the podcast, is the SWA. The Scotch Whiskey Association is there to protect Scotch, and it really wants this product to be the best it can be going out globally. But as a producer, if you want to experiment, sometimes you can feel a little bit tied by the regulations. Have you heard anything tied to regulatory within 
I'm going to say Mexico, but obviously Mezcal has... Is it exclusive to Oaxaca? Does it have a stronghold in Oaxaca? Can you produce Mezcals in other parts uh, of Mexico? Yeah, so there are multiple states. Um, depending on what you're looking at, there should be about nine states that are producing Mezcal right now. Um, the range... Let me phrase this. The states that are producing Mezcal versus the states that are actually certified are going to be a lot different. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it has expanded recently. Um, so, say the state of Puebla, who is a lot of people consider the one of the first places that Mezcal was ever distilled. Okay. Uh, they were one of the more recent uh, states to get a denomination of origin. And it does go state by state. Um, Oaxaca, by far and away, has the highest production that gets exported. Uh, so that's why it's the most famous. And that's where the boom started for Mezcal. Um, just a lot of different terroir, a lot of families already in place, and a lot of beautiful things happening. But then that's where a lot of people you know, that saw the market from the U.S. wanted to dive down and then all of a sudden start buying agaves. Mm-hmm. So Oaxaca has been the biggest threshold, but there's a beautiful production. And it's all central or southern, predominantly central and southern Mexico. Okay. It's clearly the difference for each of us is I might go out and do a tasting, mm-hmm. but it's of predetermined product that's already been arranged. Right. You and your bar staff are much more improvisational than that, where you've got somebody who's walked in and is now looking for something. Right. It's much more when I've got a friend or a friend of a friend or a spouse uh, who comes over to my house, who I'm now looking through my collection and I'm asking the same questions. What do you like to drink? What flavors do you look for when you go into a restaurant? And so it, it makes sense that that's what you're riffing off of right. uh, at the bar. Now, did you have any moments where you've really surprised somebody? Like you surprised me earlier when we started talking about you know a complete lack of smoke. Um, do you have people coming up to the bar who are expecting one thing, and your bar staff are clever enough to then pivot to something else? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Um, and we've got the beauty of mezcal being. I don't want to say unknown, but semi-unknown. It's a new frontier for a lot, a lot of people. So people come in with an open mind. So we can kind of, you know, pave the road that we're bringing them down. Um, with certain mezcals and certain agaves just all over there, to go off the mezcal path for a second. Please. La Venenosa Recias, the nose to the palate are just incredibly different. Uh, Le Tigre is one that I get Cheetos on the nose. <laughs> And then it tastes like black cherries. And it, like, I've never eaten Cheetos and black cherries at the same time, but I've smelled one that smells like Cheetos and it tastes like black cherries. And that's what my head is stuck at now. But it's one of those aha moments of what just happened and how is this clear spirit doing this? And so that is definitely one that I use when people are like, just surprise me. I'm like, all right, so uh-huh. this is going to more than surprise you because it surprises me every time. So you just did this to me in April as well, yep. where I'm busy thinking nose to palate to finish, what's the thread, what's pulling everything together here, and you poured for me exactly that. Yep. And the nose and the palate were doing two completely different things. And for me, the cognitive dissonance was remarkable where I almost felt my seat spinning <laughs> as I'm going from the nose did X and the palate does Y and as soon as you said Cheetos and John who we were tasting with said oh this is Kraft Mac and Cheese right. 
it's hard to get away from those notes uh, <laughs> once they're in your mind as well. Right. But it was it was remarkable. Um, maybe now that you bring it up, we could talk for a second. Ricea, Sotol, you're expanding out of Mescal in the bar. What's attractive to you with Ricea and Sotol? And what is Ricea? And what is Sotol? Um, both for my benefit, because I thoroughly enjoyed the tasting in April, uh, and, uh, and for the listeners as well who might be hearing these words for the first time. All right, so um, Ricea uh, hails from the state of Jalisco, same state as tequila. Um, so it is typically a single distillate or one-time distillation in a Filipino still. So Filipino uh, means you're essentially lighting the fire underneath, typically a copper pot that's holding the fermented agave, and then it goes through the what refers to the Filipino still as most likely a tree trunk or some sort of wooden uh, top. So you're used to a copper still, right? Yes, so sir. He, inst- he, he instead can of, see my face right now, which is why he's engaging me on copper. Uh-huh. So Tree instead, of, instead of having the the beautifully crafted uh, copper swan neck <laughs> that comes off the top, yes, sir. You've got a tree trunk with a bamboo shoot and a wooden spoon that catches all the distillate. Good grief! So a lot of this has been believed to be from when distillation was illegal in Mexico. So you know. You, you kick over the, the Filipino still because it's a tree trunk that you've hollowed out. You can find some more bamboo, and then you're on the move. Good gosh. So, yeah. so it's as authentic and rustic as you can think of. Um, Sotol is actually a, a non-agave distillate. It's called the Desert Spoon. Ah, so, yes. So, I remember you telling me this. Yeah, so it is non-agave, but it's still in the same family, if you will. Um, okay. It's a different succulent. Treated very similar to what we would do with agave. Still, um, years and years for the uh, desert spoon to grow to maturity. Um, I want to say it's still around seven years for the maturation, for the sugar content that you're looking for. Same roasting and then um, fermentation process. Typically, same thing. uh, One distillation, and it comes out that's a little bit higher ABV. Same thing with the ricea, a little bit higher ABV. But with Ricea, you're looking at, I'm sorry, with Sotol, uh, green, grassy tones. Okay, um, yeah. A little medicinal, like we were kind of talking about, eucalyptus. Uh-huh. Um, definitely goes down that road, some of the mintiness. Definitely very pronounced. Um, I know some people that don't love uh, Sotol, oh. and they can find it in a heartbeat. Oh, you, you poured it for me in April, and it was my very first Sotol, and I was absolutely floored by it. So wonderfully fresh and bright grass you know, again to connect it to scotch definitely one for lowland whiskey drinkers which are very bright grassy yeah. uh, some vanilla in them um, yeah. and actually based on my tasting with you I went out and bought two Sotols immediately right. um, uh, one actually from uh, Arik who's in charge of the Fidencio brand uh, as you know I'm telling the listeners uh, <laughs> I was looking at you but telling the listeners uh, and then remind me of the other one that I bought uh, Sotol uh, Por Siempre okay so that is brought in from actually the group that does uh, Nuestra Soledad Mezcal El Agorio Casa Agave de Cortez uh, the team is called Back Bar Project it, and uh, Kai and Assis that have made the Mexico to U.S. connection. Okay. Uh, Assis and his family have just been making absolutely amazing, amazing agave products. So um, it's it's an absolutely amazingly run uh, group. They do a great job. So bring anything they bring in, 
I've already got a strong feeling I'm going to love because I've never had a product from them as far as their agave is that I haven't really liked. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. They do a great job. Yeah. No, the, the, the label was absolutely beautiful and striking on it. Uh, and it was very easy to find yeah. uh, when I went to see if I could acquire right. bottles. And it's tough to find beautiful labels that actually have great contents. Exactly. Exactly. And we always say that a, a label will bring you to a product. It's the quality of the spirit in the bottle that will keep you drinking it, sharing with friends, going back to buy another bottle. And yeah. so I, I don't want to downplay the importance of a label, but it's, it's the beginning of this story. It's not the end. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. Listening to distillation occurring in a hollowed out tree trunk with basically a bamboo line arm. It's <laughs> mental. It, you know what that reminds me of? Yeah. It, remind, it reminds me of, and I don't remember if it's a mescal or a ricea, but it reminds me of the conversation you and I both had this conversation with this person, Robert Horton, whom we've mm-hmm. mentioned before. There's another producer that does his fermentation inside of a cowhide yep. and then is distilled in a truck radiator, like in a car's <laughs> radiator. It's amazing. And Absolute amazing ingenuity. Yeah. And, and just, you know, producing this, this wildly delicious stuff, given the machinery that's available to them, it almost reminds me of our conversation with Lee Atwood, where he's saying, you know, a lot of these new craft producers are buying machinery from dairies. Mm-hmm. Like they're using the same stuff from from dairy producers. So, you know, you want to make good stuff. What's available to you to make that, and and how does that affect the final product? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, I, again, you know, back to the the whiskey biases. We walk around Scotland. What do we hear? What's the number one word? Consistency. Mm. You then start talking to people who know mezcal, who've been down to Mexico, gone through multiple regions. What's the one thing you hear? Make use of what is closest to you and you already have access to. And you're not looking for consistency when you're fermenting in a cowhide. You're looking for fermentable sugars. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So so this brings me to... A question, and and I'm going to ask you of this, but but essentially it, it gets answered in in your conversation mm-hmm. with, with Alan. And again, using whiskey as our base, you're not dealing with consistency. Like the higher end mezcals, what's what's really driving the business are these small batches that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And so, how does that affect Alan selling? the whiskey, creating flights to show people the different agaves. Like if you have, if you have your standard whiskey drinker that says Macallan 12, that's what I drink, mm-hmm. right? Bowmore 12, that's what I drink. And tasting something different may take them out of their comfort zone and they don't want to be there. Meanwhile, the mezcal drinkers don't want to be in a comfort zone. It's that variability. So how do you attract those people? How do you sell to those people? I think it's a little bit like trusting an independent bottler. Okay. People now have mezcal brands that they trust. And you'll see multiple Hmm. types of releases from that brand. That's who you pursue. Uh, 
Look at Del McGee. Yeah. Right? Ron Cooper did a tremendous job introducing people to villages oh, and agaves. Amazing. And the fact that mezcal was a product to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, now, look at me. I've got the uh, Nustra Soledad uh, producers. What they're bringing in, I'm absolutely loving. And then there's one more. I just have to reach for it because it's towards the back of my okay. mezcal bottles here. Go ahead. You do you. I'll, yeah. I'll fill in space. Can you clink, clink, clink? Here we go. And I'm the producer is Alipus. And Alipus have a tag on the top of every bottle. Okay. And that tag will tell you the producer. They will tell you how they broke down the piña. It will tell you what they distilled on. It will tell you how they rested it. And so if you trust Alipus, you then start to explore. The one I've got in front of me is San Juan Mezcal. But San Juan Mezcal is just a release mm. from Alipus. That's ama- like the amount of transparency there. Again, there's that connection to independent bottlers where a lot is going to tell you when it was distilled, what type of casket was used. And, and, it's geeks nerding yeah, out on yeah. the same thing. And this has helped me to fall in love with the category is that level of transparency within it. So... Let's let's pivot over to to Alan here. There's, he's going to talk a little bit about transparency, and then uh, I'll ask him some further questions about what's it like selling. How does he sell, and what's what's what are his hopes for OML going forward? Now that he's in charge of this really fantastic looking selection of mezcals and agave awesome. spirits. Awesome. Okay. Cool. Um, I would say that people that are curious on mezcal lean toward our flights a little bit more. Um, just because it's a great opportunity. If people are uneasy, um, de- this is definitely more restaurant and table side. They'll lean toward the flights. Um, we've got a, a couple great people, uh, myself, uh, one of our managers, Asael, and our, our bar team. So we definitely want to be the rocks that can you know, go table side and talk to, talk to our guests and give them a rundown. You know, the what do you normally drink? Are you a gin drinker? Are you looking for botanicals? Are you a whiskey drinker? If yes, what kind of whiskey? Because if you're a whiskey drinker, you're going to have a preference. So um, with the training, um, what we look for in our staff is to have, you know, a couple locked and loaded in the back pocket that you know, like the front and back of your hand. You know, have a big three on the Mezcal side, have a big three on the tequila side, and make sure that you are totally locked and loaded and make sure they're different. Just don't have your three favorites, even yes. though those might be the easiest to talk about. But yeah, you know, that'll be going down your flavor profile. You know, if somebody says, you know, I'm usually a clear spirit drinker, the agave clear spirits are totally different than every other one that are, you know, grain distillates or potato distillates, whatever. So we definitely want to make sure that you're confident in a few different mezcals that you can talk about them eloquently. And you know, if those three don't really hit what your guests are looking for. Get a, get a second opinion. Bring somebody else over, and we'll be able to talk. We can taste people through it or steer them toward a flight that can show off different terroir, different agaves. You know, we've got options available. It's a little bit different at the bar because the bar, not only are we pouring every ounce of mezcal, we have the hands-on, right-in-front-of-us interactions, and this is what we do. We are the creators, and that lets us you know, 
through the creation of the cocktails, taste a lot of different ones. We do our tastings with the bar team. And then the education starts behind the bar, so that can continue to grow and grow and grow. Anything that I bring in, the first people to taste is the bar team. It's a lot easier for us to do a feature, and we generally have three, four features for the bartenders to push through, okay. just because we want to show off different agaves. We want to show off different houses. You know, if somebody's come in and you know they've given us the staff training, then that's going to be the freshest in the mind for the whole house. So that's a little bit easier for the entire house. Um, you know, why would we push an Atacano? Because it is one of the oldest growing agaves ever. It's got an amazing backstory right away. Okay. Why would why would we push? You know, any other one that's you're just kind of jumping off. We've got one that me and the staff jokes about. It's dessert time at the bar. We got one that we say tastes like milk and honey. So all of a sudden, you know, we're we're about to put down a tres leches, and we've got this beautiful darumbes from uh, Durango, and we. To us, to a lot of us, it tastes like milk and honey. Wow. So all of a sudden, not only are you not expecting any uh, a clear spirit to taste like that, you've got a backstory. It's going to pair amazingly. So finding some of the niches. So every, every bottle is going to tell a different story, and there's a right time to bring them out all the time. And you know, reading your guests is the biggest thing at the bar. Cool. So. And that's what I find absolutely remarkable about Mezcal right now is Josh and I talk in the podcast about, uh, you know, Bottles need stories because it's interesting and it informs the consumer and it stands out from other bottles. But what it doesn't need is marketing bullshit. Right. And and what I love about Mezcal right now is nobody has hit it with marketing bullshit. And so the category right now seems incredibly genuine and is terroir-driven, it is producer-driven, and it's brand-driven, but it's like we're saying about um, Nostra Soledad, right? Right. Where it's brand-driven in that regard because they're really good and they, they can be trusted to be consistent in quality, but have different varieties and approaches and tastes and flavor profiles. And they will talk, I believe, about terroir as well. Oh, yeah. um, they will let you know the, the route. And so we're with you. Story is important. Marketing bullshit definitely isn't. Right. Um, and and there's, there's some absolutely amazing producers. Uh, David Soro um, from Siembra Spirits. He is as transparent as you can possibly be. Um, fact sheets, text sheets, things that even after being on a trip with him, I have to second guess and reread because you know there's some some spirits information on the back of that label that will make me step back and go, okay, David told me about this and this is why this is and this is why I like this one more than this one or this is why the flavor is left versus right. Like he's just incredibly transparent on all the spirit labels he ever puts out. So. Yeah. Like he, he puts out some of the best spirits, and he's been in the agave game for 30-plus years. So you know, being able to have that transparency is another thing about you know, the agave world where you, know, you pick up a bottle of whiskey. Um, let's not put any names out there of anybody, but <laughs> you pick up a bottle of whiskey, it'll say you know, percentage, distillation location, and sometimes not much else. Mm-hmm. And then you pick up a bottle of you know, most agave spirits, and then... You know, sometimes they'll get down to percentages. They'll tell you um, 
what wood was used in the roasting of the agave for mezcal? Is it white oak? Is it hickory? Like, what are we doing here? Like, where do the barrels come from? Like, incredibly transparent with the wild turkey barrels here. Mm -hmm. So, the wild turkey <laughs> and the Tennessee whiskey barrels. Uh -huh. So, you know, going down to the nitty gritty of everything and being as transparent as possible because it's such a unique process and being able to show everything off is just absolutely amazing. Can you talk just a little bit more about your flights? You mentioned them earlier and I didn't yeah. stop you to ask more. How do you tend to frame your flights, especially what you're given, what you're saying here about overcoming some misconceptions? Right, uh, so we've got a couple flights. One is done by Terroir. So we chose three different states with uh, three different um, three different groundworks or like the Terroir differences. Um, the Mezcalas de Leanda Dorango is going to be a little bit more chalky and clay-based. The uh, San Luis Potosi by Derumbes is going to be uh, more green and vibrant. And the Siembra uh, Mattel Cuprieta, um, and that it's sloping hillsides in a volcanic region. So you're looking at you know ch chalk and clay, volcanic soil, and then, you know, green, lush, and, and dense forestry. So nice. being able to show off uh, the differences and what terroir by itself can make. Granted, it is three different hands of the producers, but it shows that wide variety. Um, that's that's my personal favorite to use. Um, we do also do have the Delmagay, uh three of the single villages. Mm, so I've seen them. So going by just you know one you know one set of selections by Ron Cooper to show off the Espadine, and they're all Espadines, right? So three different villages within Oaxaca. So all right, you're going. It's one state. You know, the the state of Maryland. You know, how much different can the grapes be? The state of California. How much different can the grapes be? It's one state, right? Yes. Yep. So you're you're thinking, you know. What's the big deal? What's what's the difference in the village? But we've got three different producers in three different regions of the state: uh, Chichicapa, Manetto, and San Luis del Rio. Okay. So San Luis del Rio is the furthest outside of Oaxaca City. Uh, Manetto is the most rustic, where they're using uh, clay pot stills. So it's literally just. It looks like a large watermelon. It is a big round orb that is made of clay with just a bamboo spigot coming out. Um, and a wood spoon in the center to, to capture all of the uh, distillate as it's catching from the condensation. Remarkable. Uh, Chichicapa, uh, you're looking at uh, copper alembic stills. So you're just heating everything up using the swan neck coming out and capturing the beautiful distillate. And San Luis del Rio, it's going to be the furthest northwest. I want to say from um, Oaxaca City. Okay. So you are going way out, like two and a half, three hours outside of the city in the opposite direction of the other two. So it's, just like, it's almost like you're throwing darts at a map to <laughs> show the different regionalities. But with all them being the Gave Espadina, you can show off the differences from three different makers in three different regions, all from one producer. So you've got a couple of different ways to uh, skin the cat, if you will. I, I love the fact we've, already, we've gone from tree trunks to copper alambics which are some of the most beautiful stills mm -hmm. in all of distillation. Yeah. That's fantastic. And the clay pots. <laughs> and clay I, in the middle, right? They, yep. Yeah. I mean, they, they honestly look like big brown watermelons and, you know, <laughs> just a little piece of bamboo coming out of the side. Fantastic. Um, so you're a busy man. I've, I've taken up tons and tons of your time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What's... What's the future hold for you here? What's the hold with Oyamel and Mezcal in Oyamel? Well, 
one of the big focuses that we're going to have is, you know, we've grown our collection to be quite a large collection. So we are going to be, uh, we're going to fine tooth comb everything and we want to make sure that the mezcals that we're bringing in are exactly what we want. We want to make sure that we're diverse, we can hit all aspects of the palette, you know, cover as much of the certified states within Mexico as we can so everybody has a little representation. Um, we definitely want to use some of the uh, bat-friendly mezcals. Nice. Um, one of the biggest mindsets that we can use is we want to build a library similar to Jack Rose, um, where Jack Rose has what feels like an infinite amount of, uh, of whiskeys, and uh, you know, we want to build our library not nearly as large as that, but <laughs> we want to take the way that they break down their back wall, and we want to make sure that we can uh, break down our agave wall the same way. No, well, that's let me phrase that. We want to break down our back bar because there are no our, there are no agave walls. Yes. Yeah. What, what number? If you're at one four seven now, what number could you realistically get to with a, a back wall or a back bar of mezcal? I mean, I think that we're going to be comfortable somewhere around one hundred fifty. Okay. Um, I, I think that we're in the ballpark of what we want to carry. Um, we just, you know, we're going to continue to blind taste um, whether it's a full lineup. So if it's We've mentioned Sigos and Tito's. They've got five. Del McGay, we've got 18. Mm -hmm. You know, is there a middle ground in either of those, both of those? Do we need to carry every of the seven Nuestra Soledad's? You know, just a, a blind tasting of, you know, each brand's representation and, you know, make a, a blind determination. That's, that's the best way we can do it is let our palates in our minds and where everything goes make our decisions for us. Um, so, you know, Myself and the bar team here, we do our blind tasting through lineups on a regular basis, almost once a week, give or take, uh, unless we've got a crazy week out of us. <laughs> then maybe we do two blind tastings. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, we just want to we just want to make sure that we're not using our own mind space. Where you know, I've been in Mexico and I've had some great sips and I've been on trips and I don't want that to cloud my judgment. Yeah, I want it to yeah. be the the proper call because. At the end of the day, you know, I could tell you a story about, you know, all these different places, but if it's not a great, you know, sip in your glass that's going to, you know, come back and, you know, make you want to live that same experience, then what good is that bottle on the bar? No, it's a smart way to think about it as well. You're putting yourself in the shoes of your consumer right. and not just leading them by the nose. They've got some role to play in this. Yeah. Which... You know, as you mentioned, Jack Rose, I think is how it, was, how it worked as, at Jack Rose. Right. They made it available. People right. came and experienced it. They grew. And yeah. I think you're you're well on your way if you're not already there. So. Yeah, I feel like we're in a good spot, but you know what? You can, you can never just sit back and put, put your feet up and feel great about where you are. You got to make sure that, you know, everybody that's coming up right behind you, that you want to make sure you're just as good, if not staying better than them. Nope. So That's exactly right. Well, I, I thank you a million for your time today. It yeah. has been my pleasure yeah. talking and learning from you. Uh, absolutely. I'm so glad that we got to know each other. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we got to hang out at Jack Rose, visit Brianna, you know, get to know some more single cast nation, hang out with Chris and get to talk some whiskey on your side, get to talk agave on our, on this side. So and it's thanks been for the support. Awesome. No, a million times <laughs> over. Cheers, man. All right. Cheers. Cheers. A million thanks to Alan for his time as we never really set the table, actually. <laughs> Let me clear the dishes from the table by telling you this. When I met Alan at our scheduled time, uh -huh. it was, I want to say, a Monday lunchtime, like okay. end of the rush. Yeah. Oyamel was going like a fair. 
It was non-stop, all hands on deck. Wow. Um, Alan had been helping expedite dishes to get tables, you know, their orders in time. It was amazing how busy it was. And, And I told him, take your time. I got no place to be. I'm just here yeah. to speak to you. Yeah. And over the course of our time together, he was being interviewed. He was keeping an eye on the restaurant. He was keeping an eye on the bar. He was he was still in full work mode. And I never felt like I was getting less than his A game during awesome. the interview. That's awesome. Uh, and and if he had slacked a little, I would have totally understood, and he didn't. And as, as the interview went on, the restaurant got a little quieter and a little quieter. It never mm-hmm. emptied out. just got a little quieter. And so I really appreciate the, the time that he gave That's us awesome. and he gave our listeners and the tasting and all that. Wonderful stuff. So thanks a million, Alan. I had a blast and I told him I had a blast as well. So my question for you, was it like like a renaissance fair? Like were there just people around going, make going haste. No, it was going more like a state fair. So there are a lot of people walking around with like fried sticks of butter on on oh, uh, yeah. on wood sticks. Yeah. Everybody's uh, getting a lime ricky. <laughs> Is that a thing that they do at state fairs? Yeah, we we do lime rickies uh, every year. So once a year, I get a lime ricky, and it's it's at the uh, oh, uh, the Guilford. This fair. sounds like the most pretentious, pompous Connecticut State Fair I can imagine. No, oh, fuck you, so, lime rickies at so, the State Fair. Uh, oh my, foie, foie, foie. Can I tell you how many times Elliot Amamon said foie, foie, foie to me while we were in California <laughs> together? I blame this podcast and I blame my guys in the Palouse. Wow. Foie, foie, foie is now traveling. <laughs> anyway, Lime Rickies at the Connecticut Lime. State Fair. So foie, foie, things. foie. Well, you're going to say it two more times because I also get, <laughs> I get a fried dough. Uh, that, that's standard. And... No one calls it fried dough, except for in Connecticut. You don't get an elephant ear? So so there are two different vendors. One vendor calls them elephant ears, and one vendor calls it fried dough. Foie, foie, foie. (laughs) And then I get a a caramel and nut-covered apple. Once a year. That's that's my tradition. Tradition. Does Gwyneth Paltrow have anything to do with the Connecticut State Fair? Because this sounds like a lot of gloop bullshit. Oh, and everyone gets a golden dildo. Uh, when they leave the when they leave the fair, <laughs> or a jade egg to to put in their vaginas. <laughs> it's it was Gwyneth that talked about putting jade eggs in vaginas. It was jade eggs. You've got me thinking. Was Gwyneth the one that talked about golden dildos? It had. It had. Yes. How did we get? You know, because she was selling them on her site or something. Really? For like yeah. For what's the? Do you remember the URL? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> Um, I think it's just they're known as the Golden Goose. Just go to the Golden Goose Duck. <laughs> I'm gonna have a really hard time when I start googling gold dildo. Oh my gosh! Yeah, please don't. Okay. Um, so anyway, all right. that was so, that was all going according to plan until we went way off the rails. So, <laughs> so Alan's a get, good bloke. He's a okay, and I can't wait to meet him. You never come to DC. I invite you all the time. You never come to DC. I know. I will. I will. I will. It's personally, it's hurtful, but that's you know. I go to Connecticut what two, three times a year. Never comes Mm -hmm. to DC. That's you know. 
That's our relationship. That's how this works. Oh, loud and clear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you and I, sir, have a little news, just mm-hmm. a little news that we need to get to before we get to Alan's misconception. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to request of you. Oh, gosh. That you wake the paper boy in the most alarming way you can. I don't do alarming. I just don't have it in me. I do soft and soothing. Unless, oh, am I allowed to beat him over the face and head with this gold dildo? That definitely, Jason, thank you for beating him uh, over the head and face with the gold dildo. He's woken up, as you heard. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it, but Joshua made me. I'm going to let you go first. I feel like... Like chicken tonight? (laughs) I feel like chicken tonight. Like chicken tonight. Chicken tonight. I feel like in every episode we say, this is going to be a quick news segment. And then we invariably don't make it a quick news segment. You're currently not making it quick by explaining how we don't make it quick. But you breaking in to make a meta point about me explaining (laughs) not making this quick is not making this quick either. But if you just moved on after I did that, then we wouldn't be... Stuck in this never-ending loop, this echo chamber. Like you just did when you made another comment? (laughs) We think we are so funny. I I really don't. That's the sad part. I really don't. I think we're pedantic and annoying. And and I think people listen to us despite their better judgment. Um, Which, if you're keeping score home, is a very Scottish way to listen to something. So thank you. So very quickly, I was in California. Mm-hmm. I did a San Diego market visit on the Monday. Mm-hmm. I then did an Orange County market visit on the Tuesday. I then did an LA visit on the Wednesday. I then drove to San Francisco on the Thursday. I did a San Francisco and surrounding areas market visit on the Friday. I then did an in-store tasting for... Seven and a half hours at the yeah. whiskey shop. That's when I met Oof. Philippe and Elliot nice. Conn came by. Um, Gary Geller had come by the previous night when I was oh, nice. in uh, Palo Alto. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was that was a long, long tasting, but it was a ton of fun. The people at the whiskey shop, wonderful, wonderful team of people, thoroughly mm-hmm. enjoyed them. And then I drove back to LA on the Sunday, did a tasting for a good friend, good supporter, Brett Perkins. His whiskey group uh, did a tasting for them on the Sunday night, which was wonderful. And then Monday, uh, had some lunch with Elijah Amamon and then headed back down to San Diego. Mm -hmm. It was nonstop, just constant, just travel, just go, go, go. However, however, virtually every day for a week, I was pouring our new releases. And I've said this to you, I'll share this with the listeners 
when when I'm off the road, I get a little disconnected from the nation. And and there's still important emails to take care of and still business happening in Scotland and East Coast US and West Coast US and, you know, all over the damn place. Mm-hmm. But unless I'm actually pouring our whiskey and hearing people's feedback yeah. or speaking to retailers or distributors, I feel a little disconnected. And so I loved that week of pouring, listening to people, mm. what were my takeaways, getting... You know, it becomes second nature. Oh, this is the Cameron Bridge 26-year-old. All 26 years and refill sherry, right? I've now got that release emblazoned in my brain. Uh, and I love having it there. And so it was really, really positive pouring an old grain and sherry, which is mm. a very, very rare thing. Pouring a Glenburgie, which I said to people many, many times, role of the independent bottler is to show you new sides to established distilleries that you already know about and to introduce you to distilleries you've never heard of. And Mm -hmm. for a solid week, I think I met one person who was familiar with Glenburgie and I poured for hundreds of people. Um, One person knew Glenburgie. But even those who didn't know it, who then tried it, Holy moly, it's got this wonderful multi-structure to it. It then has this tropical fruit note explosion in the middle of the palate. Glorious, yeah. A weird thing that I kept saying to people, it's grassy, but rich. Normally, if you start with grassy, you go to bright, clean, vanilla, lemon. Yeah, even delicate. Yeah, Delicate, sophisticated. You don't go from grassy to rich and yet the Glenburgie does. Mm-hmm. And it really turned a lot of heads. People were very interested in that Glenburgie release. Yes. Um, then the fact two Clinlish side by side, a nine-year-old in first fill bourbon, a 23-year-old in second fill sherry. Mm-hmm. People loved the first fill bourbon. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I think, I know the warehouse sold out of Clinlish 9 while I was there, our distributor. Yeah. Warehouse sold out of the Clinlish Nine while I was there. I, retailers should still have it. It was jumping off retail shelves as well while I was there pouring it. And, and just just to clarify for listeners who may be in Massachusetts or mm. or Chicago or Illinois, when you're saying it sold out from the warehouse, that's specifically California. We're not talking about other states. So. These whiskeys are showing up in other states. They'll be popping up in store shelves. But in California, it's sold out in the warehouse. It's on store shelves there and various store shelves, but likely to be sold out soon. Is that what you're saying? A hundred percent. I was in a very privileged position. I almost felt like a Connecticutian attending their state fair with a lime (laughs) ricky in my hand. I felt that, that level of privilege. Wow. Which I, I don't get to feel a lot as a Scotsman in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> the whiskey had arrived into the country yeah. on the Friday, and I started market visits on the Monday. These bottles hadn't had a chance to get anywhere out of the state of California. And so anybody I was pouring for were among the first people in the United States to experience these releases. That was exciting for me. It was a good thing for them. Great whiskey to boot. So, first fill bourbon, doing fantastically well. I'm loving, you and I talked about this when I came back from California. 
Yeah. We're seeing a lot of people really getting on the first fill bandwagon, and it does our heart good. First fill bourbon bandwagon. Yeah. What, did you I just said the first thought? fill bandwagon. Okay, yeah. I, I started thinking about something else. My mind went, wee. You started thinking about elephants. <laughs> no. Is that not elephants, Mike? Excuse you. Yes, we're noticing people making a move to really accessing distillery characteristics from ex-bourbon maturation and predominantly first-fill bourbon Uh, maturation. I I love that so much because as much as, you know, and and we've four of our eight, I think it's four of our eight whiskeys are sherry cask whiskeys, as much as I love that, the beautiful thing about using a bourbon barrel or a bourbon hogshead is that it never really overtakes. It always allows the spirit character to shine. And the fact that people are trying to get past the cask and get Mm -hmm. to the spirit a bit more, that tells me that people's palates are expanding and they're evolving, which, which just makes me so, so happy. Yeah, I I continually tell people, single malt matured in sherry will give you a delicious, delectable drink that you should absolutely enjoy. Mm. But if you want to get a bit closer to the distillery style, look for that distillery matured in ex-bourbon and you'll get a little degree closer to what that spirit tasted like when it first came off mm-hmm. the still. Mm-hmm. So we're not disparaging one at the no, expense not at all. of yeah. the other. Um, we're not saying you should only be drinking bourbon matured stock, but you should definitely add it to your arsenal. And this is what we've tried to achieve with this fifth retail release. Here's a Clinlish in first fill bourbon. Here's a Clinlish in second fill sherry. Put them side by side. And I kept saying that to people who were tasting them side by side. Mm. Look for the distillery style in there. Look for that waxy texture that Clinlish is known for. It's prominent in the bourbon maturation. What's it like in the sherry maturation? Yeah. Then you move on. We do the same thing again. Lechiganex bourbon, Lechiganex sherry. What are they doing? What's the same? What's different? Where's the distillery spirit in there and for the Lechig 15 it's refill bourbon so -hmm. it's a great chance for the distillery to shine through the Lechig 13 am I right in saying second fill sherry correct yep second Second fill oloroso sherry yeah and so there you've then got that oh what a really tasty dram and I would say in watching people take bottles off shelves or in listening to people in bar tastings they were split 50-50 on, on those mm. lechigs, right? Oh, right, I really yeah, like the character yeah. coming through. Oh, I really like how tasty. When that lechig hits that sherry, there's almost oh. a barbecue note rings right through it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so those were the six that I got to pour. Really loved that opportunity. Really felt connected to the fifth retail release, uh, which you might be picking up on uh, with a little bit of my enthusiasm and energy yeah. as I recount this back to you. So what what I love about you being on this trip and doing all of that, when you travel, I end up feeling a bit disconnected <laughs> from you 
Oh. Because, oh, oh. because, because you really do, you're a workhorse. And so you were like nonstop working, oh, working, yeah. working. So we barely talked. Yep. And so the, what I started doing to connect myself. <laughs> you were drunk texting Emmy award winning actor Matthew Reese, weren't you? I can tell I was, where this is going. I was gifting golden dildos to everyone in my family. Um, <laughs> no, so, so what I did, because, you know, there you were in California. Yeah. With all of the whiskeys, none of which I had to, yeah. to, to do, right? <laughs> oh, now um, we get to the heart of the matter. <laughs> <laughs> but the warehouse sent me a sample bottle of almost all of the whiskeys. Oh, Nice. Yes, and so what I started doing, and you, because you're not on Facebook, you haven't seen this yet, and well, I haven't I told you. Facebook. I'm proud of that. I started doing some tasting videos. Oh, well done! Look at you putting yeah. a wee bit of work. Yep. So <laughs> cute. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that. You're a little slow. <laughs> so so far, I posted my taste my tasting notes. On the twenty-three-year-old Klein leash and the nine-year-old Klein leash, I really oh, wanted to show that's a good that, start. that you know, uh, you know the the two ends of the spectrum with those with those whiskeys and highlight a what whiskey does from the various ages. Right, a nine-year-old whiskey is not going to do what a twenty-three-year-old whiskey is, regardless of what cask it's in. Yeah, and then what is it doing in bourbon? And what is it doing in Sherry? And um, so I'm going to be doing another five videos. <laughs> and the reason why, even though we released eight whiskeys, yes, uh, the, the Port Dundas, there was only 95 bottles from that cask. And I simply do not have a bottle. Uh, I Hopefully I'll get a chance to taste it. Because um, <laughs> the last time we tasted it is when we selected it. Yeah, so it'd be I, nice to taste it again. Yeah, I thought that ship had sailed on that one. Yeah. So, so uh, people who are listening, whether you're a nation member or not, if you just if you go to YouTube and just do search, you know, single cast nation tasting notes or something like that, you will. I mean, A, you can just find our YouTube page, which is the Single Cast Nation page, and you'll find tasting notes from this new release and also tasting notes from older releases as well. And hopefully that'll help you. Yeah, so that that's the only bit of news that I wanted to get in. Uh, yeah. Did you have nope, anything I'm, else? I'm happy with the news. While you were just commenting on the, the videos that are available, I was opening up Arik's uh, La Higuera Sotol. And I've just got my nose in it here. Uh, earlier on, I don't think I drew attention to it, but after Al and I had been talking about Sotol Por Siempre uh, mm. in the interview, I actually did have some uh, Sotol Por Siempre in my glass. Nice. Yeah, and really so, tasty. You made an interesting comment, yeah. and so I kind of went searching for it, where you said Sotol tends to have a soapy quality to it. Yeah. And... And so, yeah, the, the for me, it's never pronounced in the Sotol Por Siempre. I did get a little bit of that soap after you'd mentioned it, just a little bit of it. And now that I have my nose in the Sotol La Higuera, La Higuera. Yeah, just stop all your head. Just, just <laughs> so call well it Arik Sotol. Yeah. I can't believe you're saying I heard. Um, I'm, I'm almost getting like a caramel apple. It almost Ooh. reminds me of the... Connecticut State Fair in its own way. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. Yeah. In the distance, are you getting that lime and raspberry Ricky note? There's, I, am, I am seeing white men in seersucker suits, if that counts that, for anything. You're a terrible person. <laughs> Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> and on that bombshell, my work is done for the day. <laughs> we need to we need to get Alan's misconception in here. We do? We do. So here's what I'm going to tell people. And this is what I'm telling you, Jason. We have to get to his misconception. That's next, Alan's misconception. But there is a bit of audio in here that we didn't put into the podcast that I'm going to put after the closing song, after the outro. We never wanted this podcast to be a sole focus on Single Cast Nation, what Single Cast Nation does. And it it never has been. But, you know, he had some really nice tasting notes on our Reposado and our Añejo. And I wanted to put some of those tasting notes as sort of the Easter egg at the end. So if you're curious to know what a what a real mezcal expert, someone whose life is mezcal, thinks about what we've done, which is us dipping our toe into mezcal, yeah. you get to hear from the good Alan Grablauskas. Did I say that right? You should Alan. stop while you're behind. <laughs> yeah, also, when Alan and I were tasting these, I, I wasn't having him taste them as any kind of marketing branch, and I told him that. I was, as you just said a moment ago, curious to hear what somebody who's around mezcal every day of the week Mm. thought of our slightly different mezcals, where one is rested for 10 months in wood and one is five years wood and four years glass. I just wanted a professional opinion on it. Yeah, He was certainly interesting and very generous, and I think putting these as an Easter egg is a smart idea. So Good, 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 good. So... Here is Alan with his misconception. Uh, but before we go to that, let's say cheers to you, to me, to the listener, to Alan. To Alan, of course. To everyone who came out when I was in California last week, people who came up to me and said, Jason, I love the podcast. Didn't know their name, didn't know them from being nation members or anything. Just people who said, love the podcast. Awesome. Amazing thing to hear. Really wonderful. There was a guy, Jeff, in San Diego came up uh, when I was doing a pouring at seven grand and said, hey, love what you and Joshua do. Absolutely fantastic. Cheers, man. And he brought two other people out to the tasting as well to taste the stuff. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. I am enjoying the scene. Get on with it. Cheers, Josh, and cheers to everybody who supports us. Much appreciated and tons of interviews coming up the rest of 2019. Exciting times, my friend. Cheers. Cheers, homie. Cheers. Ching, ching, ching. Clink, clink, clink. Bang, bang, bang. Dildo, dildo, dildo. Say that. Say dildo three times real fast. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. Wow. That's our theme, right? I think that's our That's our theme. Summer breeze <laughs> makes me feel fine yeah, the- that's our, yeah, perfect I think I got that right, spot on I imagine as a category and as someone who goes to Mexico I'm sure there are misconceptions that you've encountered from people uh, along the way So um, 
I mean, the, the biggest bridge we cross every time is the smoky tequila. Do y'all have the smoky tequila? Uh, if you're talking about mezcal, yes, we have mezcal. So, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that we, we have to cross. And then, as we talked about, not every mezcal has to have a, a huge layer of smoke. There, it doesn't have to be the most prominent thing. So we find some softer mezcals that you know focus more on the roast and more on typically a little bit more sweetness where uh, the, the roast of the agave is going to be a little bit more in the for forefront, like I mentioned okay. with Tobala. Some beautiful, beautiful uh, agaves, and they bring some great fruit tones to the front. That's why it's one of those sippers I could have seven days a week and be super happy. But um, uh, to me, that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Um, so it's, that's the biggest hurdle for me. Um, and then once you get a little bit nerdier into it and you people you know start to know a couple things and they only know espadine and they say mezcal is only espadine and then starting to talk to them about how there's 30 40 different agaves like it's all just going to taste the same like no you know chardonnay from <laughs> france to california to australia it doesn't all taste yeah, the same exactly. and once you say it like that then people are like wait a minute you see the wheels start turning and they're like he could be onto something and then they give you crazy face, and <laughs> then then you're just out there to you know make sure that you can show them a totally different experience, and you know show them the differences, and that's how some of our flights are set up, so we can give them that that different mindset, and you know op open up the eyes a little bit more. As a professional who deals in this realm with this reposado, when you put your nose in it, what do you find? What do you get? Definitely from the, the roasting and some of the sweetness, almost like a grilled pineapple. Nice. Definitely just a light bit. I believe it was 10 months aged, if yeah, I remember correctly. Yeah, 10 months in XL turkey. So uh, definitely some caramel tones in there as well. I mean, that was kind of our connecting with the, with the grilling of uh, such a sweet fruit like that. Uh, on the back there, just a little uh, medicinal something, almost like a um, like a eucalyptus. I get a little bit of that, a little, a little bit of green notes. These are notes that make me incredibly happy to hear, um, because clearly there is that roasted fruit component. Uh, you know, I think we almost talked about a, a grilled pineapple note going on in there, but to hear you say eucalyptus, it's a note that some people get in single malt scotch right. where they'll talk about even a eucalyptus a menthol a minty in general and I never ever get it in scotch mm -hmm. I, I think actually Joshua and I just had one in the last little bit of time where I was like oh I get the menthol on that but to come into this mezcal and get the eucalyptus on it makes me incredibly happy nice uh, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear you getting the notes that certainly reflect what we got in it uh, and certainly what we talk about when we pour it for people as well. Right. I like the fact that the wood is there, but the mezcal is still key. Okay, so we've got the Añejo in our glass. Right. We are honored that you tasted this in April, <laughs> last month, and brought it in. So this single cast nation Añejo Retail release sits on the shelf at Oyamel. Thank you for that. Absolutely. 
I'd like to taste it with you, just yeah. like we did with the reposada. Get your thoughts on it. Again, not leading the witness. I'm not looking for this to be the best mezcal you've ever tasted in your life. Just the notes that you get. Okay. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing that. So, sure. so as we pull it up to our noses, it's not like the reposado. No, it's almost night and day different. Same producer, same protocols. I imagine the same cuts. But then five years in wood, Tennessee whiskey wood, and then four years sitting in glass, oxidizing. Bananas, creme brulee. I, I don't find nearly as much of the uh, herbal tones on the mm. on the nose this time. Do you think the wood will have tempered those out? Or do you think the additional four years in glass, would they have oxidized out? Um, I would lean toward the wood, okay. uh, just because I'm picking up much more of the sweeter tones. How quickly does your nose go to the wood presence? Because you led with bananas right away. I mean, uh, I had some of the uh, the sugar in the my in my mind. The dessert tones mm -hmm. were definitely what leapt right out of the glass. It's interesting to me that you could have that crisp brown sugar crust of a creme brulee. Yeah, be where the ex Tennessee whiskey would manifest itself but it doesn't manifest necessarily as wood like a table or a chair or a frame or it's right. it's the qualities that wood brings to maturation that you seems like you're picking up on no absolutely um i think in the reposado the wood made itself known that it was there it, it definitely came to the forefront a little bit more and it carried some of the agave with it i think that's kind of what helped bring the the eucalyptus, the menthol tones out. I think that they partnered really well to bring that out. And I think that this, you know, just the long maturation makes a lot more sense. What's happening in oxidation with mezcal? Because obviously for us with scotch, we know that it changes in the bottle, but we can't call it maturation. With mezcal, we can call it maturation. What, 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 what notes are changing in there? What's happening to the spirit as it sits and oxidizes? You know, that is something that is a beautiful question because, you know, there's not a prolonged uh, portion of glass aged or glass matured um, mezcals. Like, there's not, like, they'll be rested um, from still to bottle. Uh, like, there are some producers that choose to do uh, glass resting. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll do it. I believe uh, Real Manetto is a great example of uh, people that will do glass resting. I know Mezcales de Leyenda does some glass rested Mezcales. Um, so they make that definitely more the forefront. So a lot of producers will love to go still to bottle um, with minimal resting just because you know everything is served hoven or unaged. Mm -hmm. So without having a, anything that will greatly impart flavor, um, such as, you know, oak barrels or barrels of any sort, um, you know, first fill, second fill, reused, whatever it is, then that will impart flavors where glass, you're, like you said, it's just doing oxidation, not a ton of surface area in there. So, you know, it's just a little bit. Uh -huh. um, there, are, there are some beautiful expressions of people that are holding it to kind of see what happens, see if it softens it a little bit. Because 
as you know, coming straight off the still, you know, you can have some rough edges at times. So sure. e even if it's, you know, 30 day resting, then that can give us some time to soften up because by the time you get in a bottle and you get it straight to a shelf, if somebody picks that first bottle off the shelf right away, they get it home and you've got some rough edges. Yes. Then all of a sudden they could have, you know, that negative feeling and you go, might go, hey, you know what? I thought I loved New Esther Soledad, but you know, this bottle is not what I remember at all. <laughs> but in all reality, you revisit it when friends come over, you know, five weeks later, and all of a sudden you want to, you just want to finish the bottle with your friends. Exactly correct. So, exactly. You know, I, I guess depending on, again, the producer and the maker, same thing with the barrels. If it's, you know, time, temperature, you know, there's so many variables just because. With everything spirit-wise, as it rests, there are a lot of things that can change. Yeah. 